0: Hey, guys. So as many of you are well aware, I've recently been involved in a little bit of a public debate with a particular company regarding some claims they're making about a supposedly new exercise program that they've designed with a very low volume and high intensity. Now, they say they have the science to back up these claims. However, in a recent live Zoom discussion I had with them, they didn't produce them nor did they give me the opportunity to put forward any of the science that I'm currently aware of that caused these claims into question. And whilst, yes, it was very frustrating for myself and for many of you who tuned in, it's not the end of the world. Because by no stretch of anyone's imagination am I one of the world's leading experts in how the variables of volume and intensity result in training outcomes. Luckily, I've flown halfway across America to sit down with someone who is. Dr. Mike Isratel has a PhD PhD in sports physiology. He's an actual qualified sports physiologist and is the co-founder of Renaissance Periodization. Dr. Mike, thank you for sitting down with me. Thank you so much for having me. Now, before we get into some of my more specific questions, I'm just wondering if you've got kind of any initial thoughts to open with regarding some of the content that I've sent you over the past couple weeks, and maybe in particular, just to give the audience a bit of context, how these training variables might pertain to what you kind of spent most of your career specializing. in. Sure. So a lot of times you get claims that
1: you can sort of, you know, hit two birds with one stone or do like a very small amount of effort and get a real lot of results out of it. And when you get claims like that, in the industry, they're quite common. Generally, uh, for two reasons, you tend to be skeptical of them. Reason number one is that the literature on the relationship between how much fitness you gain based on how much time and effort you input Mm -hmm. is is fairly well elucidated. It's not all 100% known, but it's known real well. And if you have a claim that falls way outside of that range, it's time to say, okay, it's Either maybe very true and quite aberrant and revolutionary or more likely not hundred percent, it's just probably wrong. And then the other reason you would be skeptical is before above and beyond knowing any science, it sure sounds uh, strange when you hear really exotic claims that seem to just some kind of you know, circumvent conventional wisdom. So for example, if I told you you know, the typical car in the United States costs maybe around $25,000 mm-hmm. and it does all the car things that a normal car does. And if I said to you, listen, I, I just bought a car that does all the normal car things and it's completely new and it costs, you know, two and a half thousand dollars because you don't need to know anything about cars to just get just initially very skeptical and perhaps request a little bit more data. You probably wouldn't say, oh my God, I'll buy that tomorrow. Where did you get it? I'll just buy it sight unseen. But I'm gonna say, hey, you know, you send me the website or the car manufacturer. I'd like to read up about it. Cause you know, when things are really unusual and really fantastical sort of, if it looks too good to be true, I wouldn't say it probably is. Uh, I'd be comfortable with that statement, but maybe a better statement is it might be. Mm. So you might want to look into it. So based on some of the claims you sent me that have been made, I'm certainly curious about them, uh, curious about hearing more about the specific nature of the claims, but certainly when I saw them, it was kind of like, okay, either I just really missed a big section of the science, it would be unfortunate since I'm a practicing scientist. Uh, and then the other thing is, even if I didn't know any science at all, I would certainly like to switch my training immediately to this sort of thing because I have sort of very high physical aspirations and I train an inordinate amount of time. And I would certainly love to constrict my time by an order of magnitude, a factor of 10 or so. Well, 10 and, is the claim. Are uh, you sure? And get, uh, and get uh, similar results. That would be incredible and thus arises the sort of two scientific and general
0: skepticism. That's where I stand on the matter. Interesting. Okay, so just to kind of put those out there clearly um, before we go forwards, The the three claims that are most obvious in the marketing material that I've seen are one, that it is 10 times more efficient. So they're claiming you can achieve 10 times the results per minute of any other protocol out there. Any other protocol? Any other protocol, yeah. It's 10 times better than everything else. Interesting Interesting Um, initial claim. Interesting initial claim. The other one that's quite interesting uh, that we'll also get to is that training for any more than their stipulated 15 minutes twice a week uh-huh. could potentially be destroying muscle growth. Okay. And I mean, lastly, you know, they, they've said that anyone who makes an exercise recommendation of three hours a week in order for you to achieve your dream body quote unquote, is lying to you. Okay, hmm. I'm very comfortable taking those claims one by one. Okay, what I think might, might work quite well is if we kind of go through the, the sort of, not the claims specifically, but more the sort of general science, yeah. and then maybe kind of come back to how they <laughs> then deal sure. directly with the claims. That claim. sounds great. So if we start off with their, their claims that you don't need to, that they, they're gonna achieve 10 times the results per minute, right, and that anything more is almost being branded as unnecessary. Can you kind of start with maybe how, the science shows a correlation between increased volume and training outcomes. Mm. Hmm.
1: There's a lot there. And by that I mean the grandiose nature of the mistaken claims is impressive. And there's kind of like a lot of places to attack. So the efficiency claim by itself is a standalone claim from the total transformation power. So Mm -hmm. they're saying this result, this can get you great results. and uh, you know, even if they were saying with much less volume, I could believe it, but then there should be other protocols in existence at least compared to that. Uh, so let's just take this sort of from its intellectual, where to me it stands out, huh. okay? So the, the genesis of most training adaptations is a very high relative effort. Mm-hmm. So if you're trying really hard, you're going to get a lot of gains, okay, per any unit time. So if I see you training for a minute, and you're kind like, mm-hmm. of okay. yeah. like yeah i'm going to be like you know however many minutes he needs to stack up to get a good effect it's probably a lot of minutes okay. possibly it, all the minutes in the world don't matter because you're barely recruiting anything at all right now if i see you just curling like like super close to failure beyond failure eccentric failure okay. and that's a minute of a set i see i think two things one is you know as soon as he as long as he doesn't do too much He's probably gonna get pretty good results, as good as he can get from that. And two, there's actually an interesting efficiency question of the stimulus to fatigue ratio. Sure, that's a big stimulus, but it seems to also generate a lot of fatigue. Can you repeat such a maximal effort for 15 whole minutes? Most people can't, some people can get close. The thing is, is the getting close part, people already do. Here's an example, the sport of CrossFit. And not just the sport of CrossFit, but the practice of training CrossFit at a regular gym anywhere in the world. Within a 15-minute span, 15 is the claim, 10, 15, how many minutes? 15 minutes, twice a twice week. Twice yeah. 15 minutes. Numerous CrossFit workouts fall exactly into that parameter of roughly 15 minutes, mm. working at essentially the maximum effort a human body can put out, okay? Like if you do a combination of cleans to squats, to shoulder presses, dump, drop, push-up, get up, row repeat mm-hmm. that is using almost all the musculature of your body pushing your energy systems to their maximum you are going to be using your aerobic system as much as you can mm-hmm. muscular system as much as you can essentially your neural output to the rest of your body is capped the only question there that determines how much throughput you get is psychological preparedness so that's really like can you survive the pain mm-hmm. and if you can 15 minutes of of certain about a hundred different CrossFit workouts, get you as much possible stimulus as possible. Okay. Okay. So automatically their claim of nobody else can do this. And we just like, I'm really curious about what it exactly is they're doing in 15 minutes that can beat a full body maximum effort. Is it, There's nowhere else to go. It's kind of like you have a race car and it's capped at eight cylinders and you press the gas pedal as far as possible and you go 200 miles an hour because it's a race car and if you say it has to be captive A-cylinders it has to be a regular engine can you have a good driver get it to go 210 miles an hour maybe 220 okay but like 400 miles an hour gee whiz it just doesn't do that you know there's, there's a pedal that only goes so far yeah, right yeah. so it's one of those claims where the the key to getting great results is to go really really hard mm-hmm. and the human being can only go so hard and if they go super hard for 15 minutes they can get some really good gains mm-hmm. problem number one is a ton of other Protocols can do that too. Mm -hmm. Problem number two is if you take a little break after that 15 minutes and you go again for 10 minutes, you get more stimulus and more gains. And then we turn to the question of, uh, one of the claims earlier, I hate to do this to bring the claim in right away, but it ties right into the general theory. The claim is that anyone who tells you you need to train more than, let's say, 15 minutes twice a week to get the body of your dreams Mm -hmm. is lying to you. Well, that's an interesting claim. I have all the time in the world for that claim. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not, I'm not against the uh, face, sort of facing forward, but you know, out of intellectual curiosity, we ask the question of, well, is it the people that have the bodies of our dreams? Because they exist. Yes. Like, Jared Feather's a real person, right? Yeah. <laughs> 90% want to look like him, et cetera. How much do they typically train? I we don't have to say all of them. We don't have to say everyone. We could just say what's the average and maybe what's the standard deviation of how much time in the gym they're spending. Yeah. And the number of people that train twice a week for 15 minutes at a time, and do actually have dream bodies, which is to say bodies that grace the bodybuilding stages, that get awarded the medals, that are in the photo shoots, Mm -hmm. that are the best bodies, the the percentage of them that uh, are doing that little training is in the less than 1% category, possibly less than 10,000th of a percent. I'm actually aware of no one that trains that small amount of time, and the people that do are probably in a profound state of nutritional alignment, and also have really good genetics and probably also have a lot of physical activity daily throughout their day, so they burn lots of calories just walking around moving, mm-hmm. so that keeps a really guy, good calorie burning. They have really good muscularity genetics, and the 15 minutes of, twice a week of hard working out keeps their muscle at some size that, if they added to that, they would get wildly more muscular, but body of dreams means that they just kind of look good in a suit and look good in, in, uh, on the beach, Yeah. and they're not trying to be 100 kilos shredded. Maybe they're 75 kilos shredded. They have the genetics to be 100 kilos shredded, but because they only train 15 minutes twice a week, they're at 75 and people say, see, dream body. But if that person wants to win the Mr. Olympia and they hire a coach, any number of the world's top 50 coaches, and they say, hey, I really want to win this contest. I don't really just want a dream body. I want to be the best of the dreamers. Yeah. That coach, in every single instance, will be like, well, how much do you train right now? And they say, what, 15 minutes twice a week. And they literally just be like, what? Yeah. And you got this far? Well, watch this. Yeah. We're going to go into 30 <laughs> minutes twice a week and you're going to see crazy gains. And so on and so on and so on. I can talk in theory where that layering of extra volume stops giving you more stimulus. But I tell you what, preview, it's real far away from 15 minutes
0: twice a week. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and in in fairness to whilst their marketing material isn't super specific on who they're making these claims about,
1: what a dream body or what a dream
0: body really is and whose dream body it is, (sighs) when we've had discussions, they have said, you know, this isn't meant for the world's top bodybuilders. This is meant for people with actual dream bodies. I'm just kidding. Yeah, know. yeah, okay. Yeah, this, is, this is targeted at people who are currently sort of unfit, inactive, sedentary, deconditioned, or less conditioned. You know. So that's, that's what their target is. And you know, let, let's assume that dream body just means looks decent in a suit and isn't afraid of taking their top off at the beach. Right. That kind of thing. I imagined a suit top coming off at the beach, like why did you come to the beach in a suit? I know. <laughs> <but> yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's probably part of their superhero 100%. persona that I comes with having ahead. a dream body. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, and I think one thing you touched on there at the end is also quite important to kind of look at is, is where that, that drop off occurs. Because 10 times more efficient per minute is either claiming that in 30 minutes a week they'd get the same results as 300 minutes a week, so five hours of training. Yes, that's, that's, that's what example. that is kind of claiming. Or it's going to, if you, you know, if you did this protocol, and the protocol is six sets, so two push, two pull, two lower body, mm-hmm. to failure, of course, um, in, in both of those weekly, You know, that sounds like a fine program,
1: and what I would say is if they restructure their claims to be a little bit less bombastic, they would actually be quite valid. Mm -hmm. I'd be very comfortable on a scientific basis, on a sort of honesty basis with advertising that said, you know, in 15 minutes, uh, twice a week, uh, assuming you control your nutrition and physical activity, you can actually have really, really good results if you're untrained and get a much better body. Okay. If someone said, hey. I know this program that only trains for 15 minutes twice a week and it's claiming that I can get in pretty decent shape. And that person talking to me was like, my dad or someone that doesn't work out. I'd yeah. be like, that's absolutely correct. Cause okay. he'd say, well, cause you know, there's the other end of the coin, right? There's people in the fitness industry, especially people who like pay attention to people who train folks for the movies. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, how much did is someone like, uh, you know, the guy who played Thor, uh, how much does he train to get in shape to be Thor? Well, hours, hours a day. I mean, a lot of people think like that's what it takes to get even in slightly better shape for me. Like well that's how athletes do it, that's how movie stars do it, that's how you gotta do it. Uh-huh. I had one guy I remember on social media was like, if you want to look like an MMA fighter, you just gotta train MMA. I'm like wait, do so I have to get hit in the face to have biceps? That doesn't make okay. any sense. I have to train 10 hours a day in Jiu Jitsu? Like, what? Yeah. So there's the other end of the coin where people way past that sort of efficiency turning point uh-huh. and they think that's how you get it. So this method that they're using is actually quite a good method you can say, look, just twice a week for a few minutes at a time, if you control your nutrition and physical activity, you can get really, really good results if you're new to this, and you can actually end up potentially in pretty damn good shape. Fact! Mm. Fact! But taking that, standalone, is apparently not good enough, and you have to just shit on everything else. Everyone else is stupid, and you get no added benefits going more. Mm. Both of those are quite clearly false. So, I, on a theoretical note of where does that curve start to bend, it starts to bend right away. One session, per week, 15 mm-hmm. minutes at a time, is vastly more efficient, as a, as a matter of fact, of how stimulus to time ratio it gives you for results, yeah. it's vastly more efficient than, than two sessions. Okay, that's the first cutoff point. Okay, and then, and then two is vastly more efficient than three, but by not by as much. Mm-hmm. Three is a little bit better than four, four is a little better than five, so on and so forth. Okay, But efficiency is not the only way we measure results, it's also just effect magnitude. Like, so for example, if you, if you got a job that is very, very easy to do, you could even play on your phone while doing it and you got five dollars an hour for it mm-hmm. you would say this is incredibly efficient use of my time and someone would agree mm-hmm. So, okay how long can i do this job so it's only available for two hours a week you're like i'm rich yeah oh, wait no i'm not rich i'm incredibly efficient but the magnitude is really small yeah if and, only everything else yeah, paid me as well yeah. right yeah. So, so elon musk works like 12 hours a day like the most brain paining work ever it's yeah. Shit, nobody else can figure out this is a that's not very efficient but he makes a gazillion dollars because it's a lot of work and a lot of benefit. Mm-hmm. So that seems to be the case with fitness as well where it, it all depends on the sort of degree of seriousness from a client. So mm-hmm. if a client says, hey I'm doing this and I'm really really serious about my goals, I'm going to have a different assessment of what this is and how good it is for them versus if they say, look I'm just taking like one good swing in fitness and I don't want to take it too seriously. So if someone's like, hey like I want to get fit but I'm super busy, I have tons of kids, tons of animals and pets in my home and whatever and I just want to do a very minimalistic program, to get some kind of decent results, and yes, I am willing to modify my eating, then they show me this thing of two sessions a week, 15 minutes each, everything to failure, very close, and it's really hard, I'd say, that, that's a really good start. Now, if they said, look, in six weeks, in 12 weeks, whatever, I have a wedding in Singapore, it's gonna be on the beach, mm-hmm. it's not my wedding, it's somebody else's wedding, and I have to go there, and I need to look good. Because my ex boyfriend is gonna be there and I hate him and I wanna show him I have a new body, go to hell, ex boyfriend. Okay. I wanna do this twice a week. And as soon as I heard the twice a week, I'd be like, no. Okay. <laughs> six times a week, maybe even two a days. A very serious attempt at body recomposition requires lots of work because it doesn't scale like this, it goes like that. Okay. Now, you know, six times is here. Now, four times is right here. It's not a huge difference, but it's still a difference. And two times is right here. So like, you're in real good shape here. But if you wanna be in really good shape, it makes sense to add. Mm-hmm. Which is why, again, why we look at top competitors. Bodybuilders, fitness, figure people. How many of them actually train twice a week? The answer is no one. Uh, how many of them train four times a week? A few. What about five? Plenty. What mm-hmm. about six? Tons. What about two a days? A bunch. And yeah. if you include cardio, everyone's doing two a days. Okay. So it does scale like that. And so they really good point that they're making is, is a very efficient way to train uh, for some decent gains. But if they're saying you get the best gains possible, bullshit, and any more doesn't help.
0: Absolute bullshit. Okay. Interesting. In the essence of keeping on this uh, the very science-based request that I made of them and sure. keeping on that. You know, what are the number of kind of studies out there that are, are backing up both of those two, you know, references to bullshit that you yeah. just made? Like did you there are dozens. Okay. Dozens. So they they
1: started trying to ascertain the relationship between volume and let's say hypertrophy decades ago, yeah. and the current most modern reviews, depending on how you select the study for review, are you know we're talking about dozens of studies on the subject, dozens of very well controlled studies, and what they tend to find is is a sort of a, a U shaped relationship with volume and hypertrophy mm-hmm. that starts with well so like how many sets of legs are they doing per week? Four sets of legs, right? So four sets of legs has been shown on average to cause certain amount of hypertrophy. And then eight sets are shown to cause like one and a half times more hypertrophy. Okay. And then 16 sets is shown to have another one and a half times of the eight sets. Now you would expect it to be a little better because you're doubling the shit. Mm. It's not as impressive. But now we're talking about like close to two times more effect Physically two times more muscle yeah. from training with 16 sets a week than four sets a week. You know, two times more muscle. My God. Yeah that's something to write home about. Yes, please. It's like, you know, if their claim was okay, four sets, you get 90% of the muscle that you do at any number of more greater sets. Uh-huh. You know, I'd be very curious. That would be very cool. But that's just not the case. Now, you go to 32 sets. And it's not clear if it's better than 16 currently in the literature. And it's probably very situationally dependent. It also means how long do you do that? If you mm-hmm. do 32 sets of legs, you do that for a month, you may have the biggest legs of your life. you do that for two, you may completely overtrain and your knees will break and that's it. So it may not be sustainable and then anything north of the 30s is very special circumstances, very unlikely. So you end up having this curve that looks sort of like, you know we start at zero sets, you get no growth. And it peaks roughly between probably 15 and 25 sets per week on average per muscle group for this population. Okay. And then it's starts to go back like this. In mm-hmm. the 30s and 40s, it goes down again. So that means if you want to make your most concerted effort at changing your body, if your program has a lot fewer than 10 sets per muscle group per week, you're almost guaranteed not to get your best results. In this
0: case, it's four, essentially. In this case,
1: it's four. Yeah. So like we're not talking about eight. Eight's mm-hmm. fine. Yeah. Six, okay. Four, gee whiz. You know, again. If you had the question of, I want to make a very serious effort, my best effort, to get in shape, what do you think about four sets? Almost every coach, uh, the experts who've written all those reviews, like Dr. Brad Schoenfeld, who's written a ton of the meta analyses on volume and hypertrophy, Uh he actually had one a few years back, which has been updated since then. Whereas, like you know, uh, anything less than five sets is definitely worse than anything between like five and nine sets. And there wasn't not enough data there yet to say anything between ten and above is better, but they've since got data that ten plus is better still. Okay. So oh, wow. the four sets fall squarely into the least hypertrophic range that we have, which is zero to five sets per week. Okay. Like, uh, yeah, you know, if you're a more advanced athlete, and it was according to our Renaissance Periodizations, uh, sort of uh, agglomeration of the research, four sets per week is actually in many cases your maintenance volume. So, like, if you told me I could only do four sets. Of Quad work per week, I would probably be unable to make any new gains, Mm. but my quads would be the same size, which is nice But again, that's not their target population. It's regular people, Mm. which for regular people four sets a week is really awesome But it's not the best effort and after about several weeks of four sets per week They could be distinctly benefiting from six plus sets per week and a few weeks later They could be more adapted to be distinctly benefiting more from eight and then so on, and then so on, until advanced athletes probably between 15 and 25 sets per week. Depending on all the factors, there's a normal distribution there. Mm-hmm. It sure as hell isn't Four. Okay, Four is a real small amount that only works for beginners pretty well. Okay, But it doesn't even work best for beginners. So that's, mm-hmm. that's the state of the research so far. For strength, similar idea. The numbers are smaller, but I don't know if they're targeting strength benefits as their number one. This is mostly body composition, I imagine. From what I can yeah. gather. Yeah. And for strength, for us, still not enough. They're using strength
0: adaptation. metrics to measure their outcomes over sure. the time? Which is fine. There's some limitations as
1: well. There's a lot of that's just neural learning. Okay. It doesn't mean you put on a lot of muscle. You can just have gotten better at the movements, especially mm-hmm. in beginners. You teach somebody how to deadlift and they're pulling 50 kilos for a single. A couple weeks later, they could be pulling 75 kilos for a single with no actual muscle gain because the neural learning is a skill. Strength is a skill and you can get a lot better at it. Uh, now, you can probably put on some muscle, but it doesn't have to be a ton. If an advanced individual puts on 25 kilos on their deadlift, uh, gee whiz, you know, they probably put on a lot of muscle because the neural patterning is already so set that they're just not getting a lot more out of that. So using beginners and strength metrics is... I don't want to call it a trick, but it's one of those. Like, if you show it to research scientists, they go, "Oh, that's nice. You got beginners stronger." Like, slow clap. So did everyone else doing anything. People actually get stronger and gain muscle doing cardio only if they're beginners. Uh, or if you're, if there's a whole lit review on that. Uh, in the first several weeks of training, aerobic training and weight training have similar gains in muscularity.
0: Uh, that's interesting because yeah. one of the um, one of the claims on their marketing material is that this program of once it's a failure back to back to back to back with no rest between any of it Uh, as a result of working that hard for that period of time um it removes the need for boring cardio yeah well that's uh so for what
1: what is the effect of the cardio what is the benefit of cardio that they want is it for health or is it for Fat loss purposes.
0: They're not specific. Okay. It's so just for not fat loss purposes, practice. you
1: don't need cardio to begin with at all. So it's kind of a red herring. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can just control your diet and make sure your daily physical activity is pretty high. Like you walk to the store and wave to friends instead of just sitting at home like this in a blanket. Okay. And all of a sudden, that alone, plus controlling your diet, can get you almost as lean as you ever want. You don't have to do any formal cardio. Mm-hmm. I do zero formal cardio. I just have a step tracker. Okay. I get as lean as I want. Uh, so that the first thing for health, for the maximization of health. To a pretty high point, where more cardio is better. To a point of probably, I would say, six days a week, one hour of hard cardio. Anything more than that, like hard cardio, is probably negligibly affecting your health long term. But anything less than that is getting you less health benefit. So 15 minutes twice a week gets you a pretty decent cardiovascular benefit. Yeah, An hour, six times a week is like significantly more. So if it's from a health perspective, no, you should probably do more cardio than that if you wanna get as healthy as possible. And again, to sort of put the the laser focus on it, you know, if you just went through a cardiac rehab after your first heart attack and your doctor says, look, Jim, if you don't get into much better cardiovascular shape, you're just gonna like have another one of these in five years and Mm -hmm. you're you're gonna be on a beach somewhere in Thailand and you're just straight up gonna die because you're gonna be outside of airlift to a hospital and you're just gonna die right there. You're not going to train twice a week for 50 minutes at a time. You may start like that because you're out of shape, but then you're going to work up to, you know, being a competitive marathon runner (laughs) who tend to have the best cardiovascular outcomes unless they get ultra competitive and then the volumes and loads are so insane. We're talking about two-a-day training. We're talking about running 50 kilometers a day, crazy shit like that. Then at that point, it may be a little bit worse for your health. But cardio stacks pretty well and 15 minutes. Look, look, uh, here's another perspective. If you tell the same doctor, you come back or a different doctor, Let's say you're a patient who uh, is pretty healthy, is age 60, mm. and you come to see your doctor and do a well check physical, and he's like, all right, so like, you know, your heart looked good, but wanna make sure it's keeping good. How's your physical activity normal? You know, doc, I've got that, I've got that covered. I got a workout program. And, oh, that's really good, what's it like? Well, you know, see, I uh, trained for twice a week, 15 minutes, he's gonna be like, ah, that's really good. Yeah. Ideally, we want more, <laughs> and there's a whole ACSM sports medicine thing comes out, and they're like, here's how much more. And the answer is, gee, you know, four to six sessions of 30 minutes to an hour each, hard every week, is the sort of beginning of, you could put that stamp on your activity of like, okay, at least I'm trying really hard. Yeah. Because if you tell your doctor, hey, listen, like I already work out, and maybe potentially you have a situation where he might want to prescribe some blood pressure meds or some cholesterol meds or mm-hmm. something like yeah. that, and he says, now, I don't... I want to prescribe these to you, but if you're exercising, if you bring up your exercise, you can maybe get off of them in the future. And you're like, well, no, I already trained as hard as a human physically can. And he's like, well, oh, really? What are do you doing? You're like, well, I'm twice a week for 15 minutes. He's going to be like, that's not as hard as a human can train. And you can get way more benefits training harder. Yeah. Okay. Training more. Yeah. Not to say harder, you know, they're going to failure. They're supersetting everything. Yeah. That is exactly how I would train folks that don't have a lot of time yeah. and want as much as possible out of that unit time. Mm-hmm. But if, like, I had a client who has training who was look, I only train for 15 minutes twice a week. I would train him in a very similar way that these folks are doing. Okay. Grandiose. Yeah. If he said, look, I can train for 30 minutes, uh, I would absolutely just do 30 minutes the same way. Working him up slowly to that, of course. Mm-hmm. If he said, look, I have like four 30-minute slots per week I can train, he would be working up to doing that workout, except multiply by four, right? Well, actually, multiply by eight, because it's, you know, 50, yeah, yeah, yeah. so on and so forth. And they would get incrementally more and more and more benefit.
0: Now... And from an efficiency point, certainly not ten times less over the course of that increment. Gee, you know, yeah, that would be rough. Okay. Um, if
1: again, if a person's training six times a week mm. for an hour at a time, from an efficiency perspective of how much more gain is layered on versus how much initial gain do you get with the fifteen twice a week, the ten times efficiency claim would probably true. Probably true. Okay. Right. Yep. Remember, efficiency is everything. That early analogy of, like, mm-hmm. can't believe I'm getting paid five dollars to do nothing for yeah, twice yeah, a week. Yeah, like, yeah. Well, do you want to make more money? Like, yeah, well, sorry, that's all you can do. Like, okay. e- Efficiency is cool if you are so time constrained that you only have 15 minutes twice a week. Uh-huh. Now, I have the privilege of having, when uh, my co-founder of RP, Nick Shaw and I, we worked in New York City, and we had the opportunity to work at a private personal training studio, where we work with some of the richest people I have ever met in my entire life. Yes. Like people worth over $250 million. Okay. Like you interact with them and you tell them how to lift weights. Some of the busiest people in the face of the earth. Um, and they travel everywhere all the time for business. They're going on dates with supermodels. Just some crazy stuff. It's very difficult to construct a scenario in which someone could be busier than a lot of these folks. Mm-hmm. None of them had only 15 minutes twice a week to train. It, boggles my imagination how you could have that little free time to train. Uh, maybe a person like that exists, and for them, their program is almost ideal. Okay. Right? But if they want slightly better results and they're willing to work just a bit more, there's a lot there. Right? There's a lot there. Um, let me make another quick analogy for the efficiency thing. Mm-hmm. You're, if you go to Japan's finest sushi restaurants, okay, mm-hmm. you know we're talking about two-hour wait times and six-month reservation in advance, and the chef custom makes you pieces of nigiri and puts it on the table in front of you. Technically speaking, what is the most enjoyable bite? The first or second?
0: Okay, and like, I like this.
1: Oh my God. It, does that mean that if you pay $200 to sit there in front of that bastard that makes you sushi, as soon as you take the first bite, he's like, how is it you're like, wonderful and You take your napkin, <laughs> and you put it down and you walk off. He's like, there's like five more courses. Now, efficiency-wise, of how much beneficial human pleasure stimulus you get per unit time, you'll never beat that first bite. Yeah. But you sure as hell can layer out a bunch more stimulus and have a real great time. Here's another one. This is a really, really interesting analogy. Feel free to edit it out if you like. Okay. Like, in not all relationships, in some relationships, the first kiss of the first evening together, uh, you, oh, wow, yeah. per unit time, was, how much fun did you have in the last hour? You're like... Poof. Mm, yeah, <laughs> and until in the, and it usually dips, and then if you stay with a person, you figure out sort of sexual chemistry what people like, and yeah, it, it goes yeah, back yeah. up, really hot, right? But, but there's an initial dip. That's right? genius. Do you just like halfway through flirting, you're just like, all right, I'll see you later, and she's like, what? I got my kid. are just like, this yeah. is it? I'm not gonna be able to do be better than this, you know? Yeah. Uh, so you know, to that effect, efficiency
0: is not everything. Okay, I like that. Okay, what's what I find quite interesting so far is that you've and, and, and when I brought up these marketing claims to them. I was very clear in that I didn't have a problem with the program itself necessarily, right? I said the same thing. If I had someone who only had this amount of time, it's actually a pretty well-rounded, you know, basic protocol to use. But the one thing I was uncertain about when I went through their, through their sort of program and their course was this failure aspect as well. Mm -hmm. And so I'd just like to get your thoughts and knowledge on first of all the necessity of trailia, of training to failure and also how you kind of define it because as far as I'm aware you've got and you referred to the psychological aspects of it earlier right you've not just got can you do it but are you willing to stay involved in doing it so how would you kind of look at both the definitions that could change and and I feel like the, the definitions can change between an untrained person and someone who knows what you're doing. Sure. And then how necessary it is to achieve results. Sure. So the best way to define it is probably volitional failure, which is when the person just stops. Ah.
1: Um and you could get more specific. I, I'm not sure what their protocol is, but what I like to do is to uh, what's called technical failure. Mm-hmm. So when you can no longer do good technique, like sure, I can squat over and over after I've failed to do a good squat, I could do more bad squats after. Yeah uh but those don't count. So uh, the best way to quantify failure is technical failure and volitional failure. So the, the two combined is like, when you feel like you can't continue to move up on good technique, you just stop and say, okay, that's it. And then, you know, in their program, you would move on to the next exercise or something. That's fine. Of course, there's a lot of variance. What someone considers failure on the first day, they might laugh at 10 days later because they're like, oh, I was bliss. Yeah. and I can keep pushing more. Sometimes people stop. Volitionally because they sort of feel a little bit afraid that they're gonna hurt themselves Mm -hmm. more often they stop because they start getting pain of lactate Accumulation and they're not interested in that anymore. Mm -hmm. And so that's failure like no you could have kept moving it would have been painful Uh, And then there's the question of okay if you're gonna train how important is training to failure to improve that stimulus? And the answer is if you get pretty remotely close to failure, it's almost as good as going to failure. Okay. Yeah So like three repetitions away from failure is probably for beginners about as good as failure training. Um, however, it's really difficult to teach beginners what three reps from failure really is unless you're physically there working with them. And I think their program is available for folks that aren't working with a trainer by themselves. Right. And so, if you just tell them go as hard as you possibly can, you pretty close to ensure that they're training hard enough. And if they're actually re- leaving a few reps in the tank, then that's okay because you got them close enough anyway. For advanced individuals, failure training consistently is a bad idea because it the stimulus it causes is a little bit better than training like one or two reps shy of failure, but the fatigue causes it causes is massive. But that is only in context in which fatigue can accumulate. If you're training twice a week for 15 minutes at a time, mm-hmm. this total magnitude of the stimulus is so small that no matter how much fatigue the stimulus costs, the fatigue never gets very high. Okay. Because you could say, I train very hard, and someone's like, well, how hard are you training? So I go to failure every set. Wow, that's really impressive. And then they could get clever and say, oh, how often do you do that? They'll say, well, 15 minutes twice a week, that's not that hard, okay? You know, uh, that's you know, that's a fine way to train. If you told people, "Hey, look, like just stop when you get really pretty tired and not go to failure," you would still see almost the same results from the program, unless you were talking to very, very, very meek people that are really, really scared and they say, oh, okay." They may have ten reps left, and as soon as it starts hurting, I'm done. Right? So you want those folks to keep grinding. So the failure prescription is probably a pretty decent one. The only concern is if you have beginners that train to failure, a lot of times their technique breaks down. Uh, and if they're especially unmonitored, that could be a bit of a problem. So a lot of times the best way to train beginners is not to have them go to failure, it's to have them practice their technique mm-hmm. with challenging loads. And as soon as the technique starts to look iffy, you say, let's stop, let's rest. And then you start again. That's if you want to build long-term beneficial movement patterns on which people can layer and stack ec- exceptional fitness later. Mm-hmm. Um, If you're trying to get in real decent shape in the course of two months just going all out to failure is fine As long as you're at least somewhat cognizant of proper biomechanics
0: I'm sure many people are not. But in terms of the suitability with that as well, you know, the in in day one of the program you spend I think three sets of a squat, a push and a pull learning the movement Uh and then you take each one of them to failure Uh and day two it's written in there that Day two is dedicated to muscle soreness. And day three, you then do something called their AMRAP test, where I think you see how many reps you could possibly do of each of these movements. And something that was a concern to me, uh, particularly if you're just talking, even the sort of the efficacy of a program, right? How likely untrained individuals who have been sold on a program that says maximum results from minimal effort, Mm are likely to be sticking with that program on an ongoing basis. Um, And whether it's, you know, as you've said, it's not necessary to maybe take yourself and rely on even being able to judge where that biomechanic failure point is. Would, Would you, based on kind of what you've seen from the science, necessarily be programming that in for someone who is currently deconditioned to be taking themselves to their failure point? it wouldn't be my first thing that I would do. Mm. I would
1: start slow. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. When people are currently not in shape, you don't take them to failure for a long time. Uh, The good news is you probably can, and they're probably too weak to hurt themselves. Okay. Uh, as you know, like full evolutions of the pectoralis major just don't occur and about two people, car accident victims and elite power lifters. Okay. Um, you know, I you to know, you know, you know, pull your back off the bone, benching the bar. Yeah. It doesn't matter how close to failure it is. Okay. Uh, that being said, you know, and there are little injuries that can occur. Um, and especially if you go to failure real soon you actually start to learn the motor patterns wrong. Uh, Uh, You learn them in a state of fatigue and that's a poor state to learn in because your technique is already going to be off. Okay. For example, in coming up out of a squat, you can get into the pattern where you start to round and then come up because at the bottom of the squat, you Really tired because you, you just, just get used failure. to doing it when you're tired, right? You used to doing it you're tired. You're learning to do it wrong because you're doing it wrong all the time. And right? on the back of
0: another set before it, which was to failure in a different movement, so you're so already you don't even know what's going on. Yeah,
1: right. And and that's just not the best way to go about things. Is it a way that can be effective for a lot of people? Definitely.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Does it have the the ring of all these incredible claims of you know getting best possible results? Well, that's probably not true, and certainly not true for best possible long term results. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. It's, I would give it a grade of okay. It's an okay program. Uh, the, there's a big difference though between an okay program being labeled as, Hey, like, try this. It's nice. Yeah. Versus okay, like, yeah. Literally everyone else is like some kind of mental illness and they just have no idea about exercise science. And this is only the, the only truth and everything else is stupid. Gee, you know, that's a lot farther than the claims of like, this is a fine program that works and has some upsides and downsides.
0: Yeah. I, I, I have said like, if, if it just said, Hey, we have a program. If you don't have much time, you could get results.
1: Great, you could get great results. Yeah, great results. You know, the best results ever, and everyone else is stupid. Gee,
0: you know, that's that's pretty insane marketing. So, okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, one thing we haven't really touched on yet, and it's probably the, the the last thing I'm kind of curious about when it comes to also discussing the efficiency of this program is it. They've said that in an ideal world, you'll actually be able to get your sessions down to six to nine minutes, right? Yeah. If you if you're just moving quickly enough and and you've got everything set up and apparently you're in a gym where no one else uses any of the equipment. Of course, but ideal. Yeah, (laughs) wonderful, dream gym. But is there, from what you've seen, uh, a potential increase in either efficiency or just in plain results from having a slightly longer rest period between the sets that they're doing, even though they're not all the same exercise and we'll ignore the fact that there's not even any warm up or practice sets or anything in here, you're just straight in and out. what, what would you say the, kind of the science is showing you with regards to them giving themselves a bit of time between moving yeah. between these sets? Yeah. So okay. again, we have some sort of bifurcation of efficiency and
1: results. Okay. results are a matter of magnitude. Mm-hmm. Efficiency is a matter of magnitude scale to how much input you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like if I said, you know, build me a transportation vehicle as quickly as possible for as little money as possible, you would build me essentially a replica of a bicycle and I would be well on my way. Mm-hmm. And if I told you I needed the best car possible, you would not be able to be a bicycle. That would be insane. Yeah. As a Sure, hell, gets you from point A to point B, just doesn't get you there very comfortably or very far. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the same way with the bifurcation of efficiency and magnitude here is if we're talking about getting better results, we're not talking about efficiency, we're talking about magnitude. Like I physically want bigger biceps. If I rest between sets, I definitely get bigger biceps than if I just stack everything. Mm-hmm. So it's as you train more and more and more sets with no rest, what's called your systemic fatigue starts to go up it actually just does this where it goes up exponentially. Okay. And you get unable to recruit the motor units in your biceps that are the ones that grow the most because they're the ones that only get recruited if you're real fresh and you only use really heavy loads or go real close to failure when the muscle is fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, if the muscle isn't fresh and if the rest of your system isn't fresh, your brain essentially caps how much force output you can create mm-hmm. when it gets, you know, as the French would say, let tire. tired, you speak French. So, <laughs> so when you get tired, your brain just stops telling your body to do a whole lot of stuff because it's like, we're gonna die. Yeah, yeah. that. And all of a sudden, you're not getting a whole lot on your biceps. No, we can measure this. It's very, very easy to measure. If you do a set of back and a set of legs and a set of shoulders, and then you do a set of biceps, you'll say you have 25 kilos to curl, maybe able to do a set of five in a bicep curl. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. A set of five stimulative reps. Nice. If we took all that stuff and moved it back and gave you three minutes of rest after, and then you did biceps, you may be able to get like 12 or 17 reps. And where is the difference coming from? Well, the difference between those reps is somewhat that the muscle itself is restored on a holistic basis. It's some of the central drive. But really, that central drive is just activating the most growth prone, fastest twitch motor units of the biceps, mm. which, if you come in really tired, are just dormant. Yeah, you know, They just don't even turn on hardly at all. And thus, they do not receive a stimulus.
0: Um, because you just, you just, You've exhausted the ability to make Correct. that communication Correct. process. Correct. It's like okay. you want
1: to see Albert Einstein at his smartest. When do you want to get him? After a night of drinking and one hour of sleep? You get him out of bed, you go to equations, write them down. Yeah, I don't yeah. know what he's going to write down. There's certainly something impressive to us. Yeah. Maybe not other theoretical <laughs> physicists. If you want Albert Einstein to really show off, you give him a comfortable room, all his textbooks. You give him an hour to prepare. Gee, he's going to put a really good effort. Mm. Same thing with training. Training with breaks between, means that when you're ready to go and stimulate that muscle of your choice, even the whole body, you have a lot of energy with which to do it and you're not capped by other factors. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, the way to grow the most muscle is to make sure that every time you do a set, the muscle itself is the limiting factor. Like the physical muscle cannot contract anymore even though it's a really trying. And that yeah. means it's real close to its maximum exertion, it's gonna stimulate all the best growth pathways. If you layer in tons of exercises before that, if your cardiovascular system, if you, if you come up to a bicep curl and you're like, okay, let's do this, you're gonna do a good job. If you go up to a bicep girl here we go, like, your body has other shit to deal with, right? So, uh, at the end of the day, if you want maximum bicep size, you give yourself a nice long rest time. So, does uh, that make sense from an efficiency perspective? Absolutely not. Well, you can build a bike in 30 seconds, probably, if you're a good mechanical engineer, get on it, go. But you're not going very far, so the efficiency is amazing, but, you know, you're sure as hell not going to the moon. Now, we may take... Elon Musk 10 years to develop a rocket that goes to the moon, but it goes to the moon. That's really, that's what we want, right? And if you tell people shit like dream body, you know, if you you claim, if you say this can get you a dream body, it's sort of analogous to saying this is the ultimate transportation vehicle, right? Okay. If if you then present someone with a rickety bicycle, they're going to be like, exactly (laughs) where am I supposed to go? it the ultimate transportation vehicle? Yeah. You go to the store, uh, the gas station, uh, that's it. (laughs) No, thanks right? But if you really say ultimate transportation vehicle, 10 years later, you have a rocket that goes to the moon, gee, you know, there's some validity to that. And again, who are the people that go the furthest? Astronauts, you know, space engineers, they'd look at a bicycle and be like, you're joking, right? Who are the people that have the best bodies? Professional fitness enthusiasts or professional fitness people, and they all train hours and hours a day, uh, you know, least an average of an hour a day, if you're average over seven days in, in almost every case, mm-hmm. and they rest plenty of time between sets. Like if you told a really good guy with huge legs, he'd do a squat and you say, okay, right away we're gonna do bent row, he'd be like, what? And he'd be like, hold on a second, like, I can't do my back justice if I'm tired. Yes. So that's, that's the real conundrum there. So there's kind of, it seems, I don't wanna paint anyone in a corner, but it seems that there's a sort of sprinkling of like, efficiency and effectiveness and best body. And it's all kind of part of the same sort of panoply of like, yeah, these are all good things. We can give you all of them. They're often at odds with each other. So okay, what's yeah, yeah, yeah. most efficient may not be most effective. And what's most effective may require a relatively low efficiency to accomplish.
0: And you know, judging by what you've just said, I would assume that with the improvement that comes with increasing that rest time, it's almost similar to what we were looking at earlier in terms of things diminishing a little bit. So, you know, no rest is going to hamper your next set to a certain Real degree bad. Yeah, and no one's saying um, uh, well in in one of uh, in the call actually one of their experts said that if you went to the average gym and timed people training they would spend 6 to, only 6 to 10 minutes under tension which yes was an interesting generalization yeah. um, to say that that's what everyone does I sure. mean maybe, maybe let's say that's accurate. Yeah, and, and, and maybe let's say that is the case and we are it doesn't sound like you're saying that in order for people to make improvement they have to sit around on their phone for five minutes scrolling through social media between sets just to make sure that they are as prepared for the next set as when they walked in the gym half an hour ago or something but on us on a slightly incremental basis bit by bit by bit up to a certain point which will probably be individualized based on i guess i, kind of just, the I hell. actually tell you exactly what that point is. oh so awesome. that's a serious point cool it's when the target muscle
1: is now rested. Mm-hmm. So for example, if your biceps still have lactic acid buildup in them and it still hurt, don't go again because most of the fibers simply won't activate. Acid directly impinges on contractile function. So if your biceps still are like, ah ah, and someone's like, do it again, don't do it. This is no, no benefit to that. The second thing is is another muscle preventing you from doing it. So for example, if you're doing cable curls and your lower back is on fire, we have clearly not the target is the lower back. Mm-hmm. So if someone's like, You ready? You're like, yeah, my biceps are fine, but my back is still gonna limit me on this next set. I'll do 10 reps and stop because in my back, I could have done 15 if it was just my biceps. Still rest. And then the next layer is cardiovascular, right? Are you still breathing heavy or are you breathing relatively normally? If you're not breathing relatively normally, your cardiovascular system won't impinge on your next set. Like Mm talking about like sets of 15 in the squat. There's two ways to fail. One, your quads give out, and two, you just can't breathe anymore. So you want to wait until you have your breath back to do another set of squats. And then lastly, it's just general sort of neural preparedness, nervous system preparedness, Mm -hmm. and you can judge that uh, pretty well as a human being just out in the world without a lab as to when do you, when do you feel strong again? You know like because you you'll curl the bar and you put it down, you look at it again 10 seconds later, it's just like it's intimidating. It looks heavy. Someone's like, you ready to go again? You're like, that gonna crush me man, ah, it's heavy. But after like, you know, depending on the time of all those factors line up, the yeah. last one let's say being the neural factor, at some point you look at it and you're like, this shit is gonna happen. I feel strong. Okay. So if you don't feel strong before a set, gee, you know, you're probably not gonna do all that well. How long does that whole process, that four factor model of rest time, how far, how you know, all of them have to get knocked out. Oh, so in very small untrained females, that can happen as early as 30 seconds after training, after after a set. In people that are gigantic and muscular, usually male, that can be five to 10 minutes. But that's like Mr. Olympia. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. If you do a set of 15 squats all out to failure, you weigh 280 pounds, gee, you're going to be throwing up, you're going to be on the ground for a while, then after 10 minutes, you may be able to do another set. Most people don't need to do that. But I would say, if you rest, Even if you do a superset, you do lat pulldowns, and then because those muscles aren't tired, you can do some chest press and get pretty decent effect. You'd be better off waiting, but let's say you really have an efficiency side, it almost always pays after that chest press before you do another set of lat pulldowns to rest like at least 30 seconds. Mm. Because 30 seconds as far as efficiency is, of course, it's gonna increase the time your total training, but as far as how effective it will make the next sets is the answer is a lot more effective. And again, the question comes, what are you trying to do in that training? If you're trying to stimulate muscle growth, getting under tension isn't good enough. Getting under tension when your fastest motor units are ready to contract and do so forcefully is the answer. Yeah. And then if you're under tension for six minutes, the first one and a half minutes is your faster fibers really getting it and the rest is your slower twitch fibers that are go are all, doing all the lifting because you're super weak and tired. You know, slow clap, you're under tension. Um, you could do something similar with you take a runner, right? And you put them on a treadmill. And, uh, or even an elliptical where there's never, he never removes his feet. And you say, what percent of time is this quadriceps being exposed to tension? So 100% of the time, yeah. all the six minutes. And well, that's really impressive. You can't even beat that with lifting because nobody can lift for six minutes straight. They have to take breaks, do another exercise, even walking from one bar to another. That's time spent, mm. right? So you say, okay, clearly running must be the most hypertrophic thing you could do. Well, no, because the faster fibers wear out right away and then it's slow fibers all the way after. You want to do is rest enough time for the faster fibers to catch some wind Mm -hmm. and then have another good productive set and there's again There's a trade-off if you rest a long time you get a really big effect magnitude But your efficiency is not that great Mm -hmm. if you rest a short time your efficiency is really good The total effect magnitude is not great. So what you do is if you're dealing with clients you say hey listen How much time do you have and you fill in that time with as much quality work as you can Mm -hmm. And usually the answer is somewhere in between, resting a very long time and resting very little time. Now if they have very little time to train with you, you rest almost not at all, which is why this program is a decent program. If you have four four sessions a week, 30 minutes each, you can start to rest like 30 seconds between each set and get a huge net benefit overall. Mm -hmm. And if you start to be able to train someone six days a week for an hour each time, supersetting everything is insane. You'll overtrain long before anything happens. Yeah. And you'll overtrain the worst way possible that your actual gains won't be that impressive. You'll just bury yourself with just trying to do too much.
0: So yeah, it will just a very high volume of lower quality work. Stuff,
1: yeah, yeah, something. You're doing something, it's just not really clear what you're getting out of it, yeah, 100%.
0: Cool, so obviously we've been through quite a few different aspects here, right? And quite a few of the variables that we're considering. And again, just, just like a lot of what has been part of the discussion so far there's not necessarily anything intrinsically wrong with the protocol but there's a couple of questionable aspects to the claims about its efficiency very well very well said. but we've, we've kind of talked through three or four or five maybe different aspects of it just for the audience maybe in case they're a little bit bewildered about all the information that you have just laid on the table for them maybe could you come up with like a sort of a, a takeaway from yeah, this,
1: The first thing you have to figure out is how much time, how time constrained you really are. How much time are you willing to put towards a fitness goal? Mm -hmm. And uh, and to be completely frank, the more time to put it, the more time you put towards it, the better your results will be. And that doesn't mean that you should be putting a lot of time, but it's kind of like this. Let's say your goal is to make as much money as possible. Mm How much should you work? Well, gee, you know, like as much as you can is really the answer. The more you work, the more money you get. But there's family time, there's leisure time, there's sleep, there's meals. So you need to be first telling, okay, I'm gonna work, but for X, Y, Z hours per day or per week. Given that we now know that, we can find out the most efficient and effective within that amount of time way for you to train. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, the last time you have, the harder you train, at any one time you're in the gym. So if you're there for 15 minutes twice a week, you are gonna be going everything to failure all the time, no rest, and that's a great way to train. To get 15 minutes twice a week's worth, 30 minutes a week's worth of exercise input, which is just not that much, right? It's not gonna beat an hour total a week of any kind of training pretty much. It sure as hell is not gonna beat four hours of training per week. But if you really only have 30 minutes per week, going ultra super psychotic hard is a really good thing. If you have more time, then going super hard doesn't make any more sense because you'll generate a crap load of fatigue and the amount of stimulus you deliver is not that great because you get so tired during the workouts, if they're longer, that they you end up doing what's called a junk volume. Yes, you are lifting, but most of the parts of your muscle that grow the most are off or almost off by then anyway, so you don't get a lot of benefit. So at that point, as your workout sessions stretch out from, say, 15 minutes to an hour, the number of rest breaks is going to increase and the magnitude of rest per break is going to increase so that you're doing a higher quality level of work. Mm-hmm. Now if we measure how much total time you're contracting yeah. the muscle that you're targeting during the hour versus 15 minutes, during the hour you may only get double the amount of contraction time. Like what the hell, we're training for four times as long but with double, but the amount of musculature that's growth prone you're bringing into each contraction is now higher, much higher, and you get a much better result. Is it as efficient on technical metrics? No because efficiency is highest when you do the least amount of work, and for the way the human body works is, if you do a small amount of work, you still get a pretty decent adaptation, and any more work you do, the amount of adaptation you get layered on top is not as impressive as you would think. It's you know an asymptotic relationship, Yeah. but you still get a lot more. So if, if I said, okay, I have five minutes a week to learn French. Well, how do I do it? It'd probably be pretty intense five minutes a week. Yeah. But if I said, look, I'm gonna be living in France all the time, how intense do you want the French to be? Clearly, I'm not going to be putting in headphones to French people yelling at me the entire time I wake. So it's one of those efficiency and total effectiveness have to at some point be negotiated. The way you negotiate that is decide with the client how much time they have. And then you train them appropriately hard for the time that they have. And if they have more time, they train less hard at any given time, focus more on quality, and then they get really, really good results.
0: And for anyone who has got that time, but is concerned that spending more than 15 minutes twice a week could be destroying their muscle growth. Is there anything you've seen to suggest yeah. that? Yeah, so it's so very correct in a technical sense.
1: It could be. Okay. But the thing is like the amount of training you'd have to do to destroy muscle growth is probably on the order of six hours a week, like one hour
0: hard yeah.
1: every day, six days a week. And then most people would still be fine and probably get their best gains, but a small fraction of people would overreach and then overtrain. So that's where we hit that,
0: that other side of the curve correct. that you are talking about. Correct.
1: Okay, yeah. So and then it's too much, mm-hmm. but it's actually very easy to tell when it's too much because your performance starts to go down. Mm-hmm. So like if you're growing muscle, you're also going to be growing in strength, and if your strength keeps going up over time, then you're not doing too much. Uh, if your strength starts to flatline and then fall, then it's time for you to take a break, relax and do a little, a little bit less, and then slowly do a little bit more, and it's kind of like the cyclic approach to fitness
0: results. So and, but nothing you've seen so far implies that that takes place after 30 minutes a uh, week? Oh good g- god, no. Okay. Yeah,
1: so so that's why they said, you know, could. Yeah. The could is, is real nasty, you know, so yeah. like, could aliens come down right now and shoot both of us with a phaser gun? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is that likely? Wildly unlikely. So, uh, to put it in a more accurate way, is it likely, because could could is really kind of, gee, in, in most cases, could is kind of pointless outside of imagining, like the children do. Yeah. Like, you know, when your parents say, like, you could be anything you want when you grow up, like, they don't probably mean world's strongest man. Unless you're like six feet tall when you're 13 already or something. they mm. more or less metaphorically using that. So the real thing is, you know, what's likely to happen? And is it a realistic possibility? Yeah. Like if you're renting a car and you're like, is there a chance I'm going to hit an elephant with this thing? Like if it's in, in the United States, they're going to be like, that could happen. An elephant could run out of the zoo and you could hit him it's wildly life. Doesn't mean
0: don't get realistically don't Realistically,
1: don't, yeah. don't prepare for it. <laughs> don't waste your time preparing for it. So, if you're saying, Ooh, I've been training for twice a week, 50 minutes of time, I'm really kind of scared to do more because I could get overtrained, uh, not a realistic concern. It's not a realistic concern all the way up until you're doing six days of, of training, an hour each, and you're going crazy hard, then it becomes a realistic but tiny concern. So, then maybe of the 95 people we had trained like that, maybe 5% would run into this problem of overreaching and overtraining. So, if someone's like, Hey, six days a week, I'm training is there a chance I can overdo it like yeah it's a small chance so here's the stuff to look for but if someone's like I'm training twice a week 15 minutes each time is there a chance I'm overtraining there's just one specific instance in which it can happen uh, acute overtraining so like rapidomyelitis where Mm your muscles break down and go into your bloodstream and block your kidneys that can happen to anyone that that's actually a good argument sort of against this program because that's why you want a few weeks of uh, incrementally Start for very easy and go eventually very hard, not coming out of the blocks. With out of the blocks, going to failure is actually probably the best way to engineer that really disastrous. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, so so outside of that, it's not a realistic concern in the least. Like, if someone told me, like, Hey, listen, I've been training for a little while, Um, I I feel really good, I'm doing 15 minutes twice a week, I want to add a third session of 15 minutes, but I'm really afraid it's just going to be too much. As a poor physiologist, I would try not to giggle, and say, Oh yeah, no, I think you're totally fine. And then you look. Like, really, are you sure I'm really scared? I'd be like, oh, let me make more confidence. You're, I can almost put my professional reputation on the fact that you're going to be not just fine, but better. Okay. Right. It's kind of like you're teaching someone to drive and they're driving at, you know, five kilometers an hour down the street. And you're like, well, you want to try 10? And they're like, I don't know, someone could die. You're like, ooh, the number of ways in which death can happen at 10 kilometers an hour is very small. So I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. probably we're just going to get to where we're going faster. So.
0: I mean, the, the, the concerning thing for me, actually, about that statement is that Say when your parents tell you, you could be anything when you grow up. Yeah. That's an encouraging thing to tell someone. It's nice, right? It's, yeah. it's, an, it's an encouraging thing. And it's in, by telling them that, you've got a lot of positive potential outcomes by opening their mind up to that being a possibility. And by telling people and making them scared of anything more than 15 minutes twice a week, I feel like there's quite a large portion of the population that even just from, if, if you're that sedentary and you're that unfit or deconditioned, and there may well be a level of urgency like that that man you were talking about earlier who had a a heart problem, right? And needed to get fitter quicker. Sure. To to scare them out of doing any more exercise than that is potentially detrimental to their potential health. Oh, absolutely. Yes, needless Mm -hmm.
1: at at best. Uh, And inculcating them with ideas that they'll base further fitness ideas on, Mm -hmm. especially if they reach them early, in which their sort of heuristic for looking at other fitness ideas is warped and needs to be significantly unwarped. So it's like, well, oh, stuff you learned earlier was kind of wrong. We're going to teach you right. Uh, so uh, unfortunately, that tends to happen a lot, and I think it's the case here. Uh, so uh, again, uh, they would be on very good footing if they said, hey, this is a really good way to train. And then for those for whom time is really short, it's probably the best way to train. And I'd say that that's, that's true. Okay. Uh, but you know, if you do any more, you're an idiot, or if you do any more, you can overtrain and, and Lose muscle, you know. I'm curious to see where these people are. They're training a lot, losing muscle. All the professional bodybuilders that I know, and some of whom I train with and train, uh, you know, they train an order of magnitude more, and somehow they're not losing muscle. And and before anyone says it, more than half these folks are drug free. So even without drugs, you you train a lot, and and, and you just keep getting gains. And and, and then before you start losing muscle, you get really tired. Yeah, (laughs) for like weeks, you're like, oh, I can't do this anymore. You still don't lose muscle, but you're like, oh, I need to do less, and that's it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's kind of one of those things like, you know, if you're on a safe track uh, with a roll cage in your race car and it is just one strip and there's nothing to hit and you go up to 100 kilometers an hour and you're like, oh, God, am I going to die? Like, no, the answer is the car's just going to shake and you're going to get scared and you're going to slow down. The answer is not like you're going to go 101 and boom, your car explodes and body parts fly out. So, yeah, you'll you'll know when you're training a lot. Uh, But, again, not to pick on these fine folks, but, you know, if you enter the fray we're right into failure right away. Even two sessions of fifteen minutes a week, mm-hmm. especially that first one, yeah, some people will respond to it not so great, and they could actually get in a situation where they get rhabdo and that's not great. Yeah. Unlikely, also. Yeah, 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 but realistically unlikely. Not like Mickey Mouse comes down and is your friend. Unlikely.
0: So. Cool. Well, thank you very much. That was brilliantly enlightening, and a lot of the stuff that. I wish I had an opportunity to even touch on, let alone, say, as extensively and eloquently as you just did. Uh, if I could have put you in my body for that call, it would have been an amusing one to watch. I don't know if I would fit into your body. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that would, you know, in a future, uh, you know, discussion, I may be amenable to debating with them directly if that's possible.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. My
1: pleasure. Thank you for coming to chat. Cheers. Thank you.